Oswald Chambers, who is best known for his devotional classic, My Utmost for His Highest, I'm sure some of you have that book in your library, he said, we're not to make people converts of our opinions, but we are to make them disciples of Jesus. I shared this same quote from Oswald Chambers once before, several years ago, but it is more relevant now than ever before, I believe, in the church. As followers of Jesus, the most valuable thing we have to offer people is Jesus Christ. People don't need to know what I think about various political and social issues of the day. My opinions are of very limited value, if of any value. And I dare say the same about your opinions. The thing I have to offer, which is and always will be genuinely valuable to everyone, is Jesus Christ. He's the author of life, it tells us. All things were created through Him, and in Him all things hold together. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the source of salvation and new life for all who put their faith in Him. If you want the ultimate cause to give your time and energy and money to, it's this. Help people believe in and submit their lives to Jesus Christ. This will change the world more profoundly than anything else we can do. We're continuing our study of the letter of 1 Peter, as I said a moment ago. In chapter 2 of the letter, Peter gave us some instructions on how we are to behave in the secular society around us. Then in the first half of chapter 3, he gave us instructions about how we are to treat one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in the second half of chapter 3, which is where we'll be at today, he returns to the topic of how we are to live in general society among people who don't share our belief in Jesus Christ. He speaks to Christians who are facing persecution for their faith in particular, but he also couches within this, he gives us some great important principles to follow when sharing our faith with others, when telling others about Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you the reason for why you don't share your faith in Jesus Christ with others more often than you do, one of the reasons that would be near the top of the list for many of us, I believe, would be fear. We fear rejection. We fear persecution. We fear embarrassment. We fear a loss of friendships. We fear a loss of reputation. We fear we have no credibility. We fear that we won't know what to do or say. The first thing that Peter addresses in this passage today is fear. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, although it may sound on the surface like Peter is, is saying that a believer committed to doing good can expect to not receive any persecution, that's really not what he's saying. I mean, we can read about a number of times in the book of Acts, for example, where Peter and John and Paul and Silas and other believers 
suffered persecution, and they were all seeking to do good. We have many examples throughout church history, right up to the present even, of the same thing. Seeking to do good is not a get-out-of-persecution card for us. In fact, our living a Christ-honoring life may bring persecution upon us rather than keeping it from us. As we get further into this passage, it becomes clearer that Peter is reminding us that ultimately we're safe in the hands of the Lord no matter what or who comes against us in this life. We have a life and a future to look forward to that is so amazing and so secure that whatever happens to us in this life is as nothing in comparison. It's the same idea that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? He writes in Romans 8:31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And if we skip down to verse 37 of that chapter, he says, No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing promise this is for us to live under. I mean, who's going to harm us? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no way to ruin a Christian's day who fully takes hold of this promise and lives in it every moment of their life. Lord, help us to take hold of your promises with both hands and all of our heart. Amen? He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Eager to do good. We, we want to be people who are characterized as eager to do good. The word translated eager means to be deeply committed, devoted to something, enthusiastic about something. The Greek word, zelotes, which is where we get our English word zealous and zealot from. That's the word that we have here. We want to be characterized as people who are eager to do good, who are zealots for good, both by living a Christ-honoring life, seeking to imitate Jesus and to be a blessing to those around us. We want to Look for ways to breathe hope into life situations, to offer help and encouragement, to carry the Spirit of Jesus Christ into every situation, eager to do good. Verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear, what they, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Peter knew all too well through first-hand experience that in spite of all that we might do to prevent it, there can be times when we will face unjust suffering for our faith. He did. When those times come, we need to remember that we're blessed, he tells us, we are being treated in the same way that Jesus, our Lord, was treated. Peter makes the point even clearer a little later in this letter, down in 1 Peter 4.12, where he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And he's talking about persecution for their faith as a follower of Jesus. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. It's a spirit of glory and of God rests on you for the spirit of glory and God, and of God rests on you, I mean. It says, do not be frightened. Why? Well, we talked about that just a moment ago when we looked at verse 13. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus said this about fearing others in Luke 12, 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is saying that the, one, the only one that we need to fear is God because he's the only one who can really, truly destroy us. But we don't need to fear him because the fearsome one is also the same one who intensely values us and cares for us beyond description. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We're to replace our fear of others and persecution with a reverence and confidence in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's really in control of everything. He's the one who is really deciding our fate for us. He's the one who gives us worth and where we find our identity and our value. He is our center and our core. He's the audience of one, as they say, that we are living for. Instead of being fearful, we can be fearless in Christ. The second half of verse 15 gives us some great principles on how to share our faith with others, where he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. He says, always be prepared. The opportunity to share our faith in Christ with someone often comes at unexpected times. It, it's important for us to be prepared at all times. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've had the experience many times when <laughs> I am busy, focused, distracted, taken up with something else. And it's at that moment when the Lord brings someone across my path. It's like, ugh, I'm not prepared for this right now. <laughs> I don't have the right attitude. I'm all worried about my own problems, or, you know, whatever it might be. Or I'm just, I'm just busy, you know. 
says, always be prepared, always be ready. The Boy Scout motto is, be prepared. And it's applicable for the Christian, too, with evangelism. Always be prepared, because you never know when you're going to get an opportunity. Part of being prepared is watching for opportunities that come along as we are bouncing through life, to be proactive rather than reactive about this stuff. And that doesn't mean we should try to wedge Jesus into every conversation we have with people, regardless of whether it makes sense in the context of that conversation or not. It means that we want to always be watchful for those moments when, when sharing Christ with someone makes sense and, and take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, here's an example of, of, of uh, not, not doing it this way. But say a friend comes up to you very excited and uh, tells you that uh, he just bought a new car. And your reply uh, should probably not be, materialism is a sin. You should have given that money to the poor and purchased a citywide bus pass for yourself instead. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Repent. That kind of approach, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be an effective way to encourage most people to become a follower of Jesus. The words that you speak may be true enough, but the tone in which they are said and the timing of when they are said can prevent what is said from being heard. Let's be wise about choosing the moments and how to Use the moments that we're given. It says, be prepared, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. Part of being prepared means we have invested time and effort into learning what we believe and why we believe it. People will sometimes say that they don't share with others about Jesus because they don't know what to say. Well, how do we overcome that problem? By learning what to say. <laughs> we don't have to be a theologian. We don't have to be a gifted evangelist. We don't have to be a deeply informed Christian apologist. But we ought to be able to give an answer for why we are a believer, why we believe Jesus is our Savior. We, we ought to be able to articulate the basic message about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. One of the best ways of doing that, and we've talked about this before in the past, is to share your own personal story about how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. The one subject that you would be considered an expert on is you. So tell your story. You can think of your story as having three main parts. If you're thinking, oh, my story, where do I start it? How, you know, where do I go with it? Think about it this way. What your life was like before you met Jesus, how you met Jesus, and then what your life is like now after having met him and you are now following him. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope that you have. 
This implies that our life as a Christian is noticeably different enough in a positive way that others will want to know what that difference is. Now, before you start going through this deep self-examination exercise, wondering if there's any detectable amount of Jesus' life in you that others can see, I want to say that you're not a good judge of that about you. You're probably the worst judge of what your Christianity looks like to others. I mean, have you ever heard your self-recorded, your voice? You go, who's that? I thought I sounded a lot, you know, better than that. We're always a little disappointed at what our voice sounded like, aren't we? It's the same way with the impression that we're making on others with our Christian faith. We don't know. We, we need to focus our attention on simply walking with Jesus, trusting him to make our faith evident to others. Don't obsess about whether anyone can tell if you love Jesus or not. Just go on loving Jesus the best that you can, moment by moment, and leave the rest of it up to him. You'll be surprised how much he can do with so little. People are not expecting perfect people. They're not put off by your human failures and shortcomings if you are honest and humble about them. People want to see how you handle your struggles and your stumbles. They want to know what gives you the courage and the strength to get up after you've fallen. They, they want to know if Christianity is real or not. And, and, and that's not answered by us having a flawless life. It goes deeper than that. People want to see our hope and peace and depth of soul and purpose for living and our relationship with Jesus Christ. The next thing he says here, but do this with gentleness and respect. How we say it can be as important as what we say. How we say it can be as important as what we say. Establishing rapport and trust with a person, demonstrating empathy, showing compassion, it opens lines of communication, doesn't it? That word gentleness, caring concern, Pleasantness, sensitivity, humility, kindness, friendliness, not harsh, not pushy. Respect, honor, reverence, dignity, appropriateness. We, we want to treat people with the same kind of care and dignity that we would want to be treated with if the roles were reversed. Show proper reverence for the subject matter. This is one of the most serious and confrontational subjects a person can talk about. We're not discussing brands of dog food. We're talking about core values and beliefs, life and death and eternity. We need to respect the moment and the things that are being talked about. 
Look at the way Jesus treated it, interact, and interacted with people. He, he was a master of communication who won people over in a variety of ways, didn't he? And, and he was always gentle and respectful with people. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. The religious leaders of his day, they didn't like him because he wasn't religious enough for them. He was real, authentic, open, honest, unpretentious, plain, gracious. Jesus, he had the most justifiable reason of anyone to be uppity and judgmental toward other people, didn't he? I mean, he was perfect. He was God. And yet, he was the most gracious person who has ever lived. Colossians 4.5, Paul writes, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In ancient Greek culture, salty speech meant that it was lively, engaging, interesting, insightful, relevant to the moment. Our conversations with people who have not yet come to faith in Jesus, they should be seasoned with salt. Be wise. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is another way of saying do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This points back to the same stuff that Peter was talking about in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, when he wrote this, Live such good lives among unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We talked about this before, but, but the best way to silence the critics, the best way to avoid the label of hypocrite, the best way to establish and maintain our credibility as a Christian, is to really live it. It's better, he says, if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The Lord, he doesn't promise us that we will not suffer if we are a follower of Jesus. The Lord doesn't promise us that we will not suffer if we live a good life and do the right things. The Lord has not promised us that we will not suffer if we are a good person. Evidence from both the Bible and history indicate that people who follow Jesus can suffer in this life. People who live a good life and do the right things can suffer in this life do suffer in this life. Suffering is not always avoidable. If we suffer, though, we want to make sure it's suffering that we don't deserve. 
There's no honor in getting what we deserve, is there? He continues in verse 18, he says, For Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the gospel message which we have put our faith in, and the reason for the hope that we have. Here is the why that we give to others for why we follow Jesus. Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death for us. The perfect, righteous, sinless Son of God died for me in my place as my substitute, taking upon himself the punishment and the judgment that I deserved so that I can have a relationship with God. The gospel says that through the sacrifice of Jesus, the condemned are redeemed and set free. The dead are made alive. Those who were shut out and denied access to God and eternal life have been invited in and seated at the king's table. Merit is not the determining factor for entry. There's no earning to be done. An economy of grace has been established. What's required for us to receive this is to have an honest acknowledgement of our need for forgiveness and then the humble receiving of God's grace extended through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His Son. Verse 19 through 21, these are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to understand. There is not wide agreement among Bible scholars about the details of what Peter is talking about in these verses. So if you read these verses, you go, I don't know what that means. Jeff, tell me what that means. I go, I don't know what some of that means either. You'll, you're, you'll, you're always able to find somebody who knows. Because there are some people who always know everything. But knowledgeable people acknowledge that they don't know exactly what he means by some of this. There are many questions raised by some of the things that are said in these verses. It's best for us to talk about the obvious that we have here and not speculate too much about what is not so clear. So verse 19, he writes this. He says, after being made alive, he's talking about Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. We can say this, that immediately following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus proclaimed his power and victory over sin and death to those in the spiritual realm. And this included those from the days of Noah who had perished in the flood. I can't say much more beyond that. 21, he says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Peter draws out some symbolisms and parallels here between the flood story in the days of Noah and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah's ark was a type of Christ protecting those that were in it from the floodwaters of God's judgment against sin. In a similar way that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are protected from the judgment of God against sin. In a similar way that Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood, which cleansed the world of corruption at that time. So baptism, he says, portrays the work of Christ in our life, which cleanses us from the corruption of sin by putting to death the old self and raising us to a new life with Christ through his resurrection. So to be clear here, I want to make sure that that there's not a misunderstanding that Peter is not saying that being baptized saves us. Rather, baptism portrays or symbolizes or illustrates us being saved in Christ, the thing that Jesus Christ has done for us, being cleansed from sin by his sacrificial death and raised to a new life through his resurrection. We actually see that symbolized in the being put under the water as dying and being washed and cleansed, dying to the old self and being raised up out of the water again. We are being raised to our new life, resurrected. All of that symbolism we see in this act of baptism. But that act of baptism is not the thing that saved us. What saves us is what Jesus really did do. That he died and came back to life. And finally, the chapter closes with verse 22. He says, Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him? Peter, he ends this section reminding us that Jesus Christ is now the supreme Lord over all other powers and authorities, whether physical or spiritual. He sits now at God's right hand, the place of greatest honor. So in closing... I want to encourage you to share your faith with others. Be fearless. Be prepared. Watch for opportunities. And share about Jesus with gentleness and respect, emulating his graciousness. I pray that the Lord opens up many opportunities for you to share with people. And remember, it's our job to invite. It's the Lord's job to open hearts and minds and change lives. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news or bring gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your good word spoken to us today. And Lord, I pray for each of us that we would follow the example of Jesus. And Lord, that you would open our eyes to opportunities. We pray that you would bring those opportunities across our path. You would give us a fearlessness, a confidence, a courage in you, Lord, to to speak, to share with people. You would give us the words, the wisdom, the compassion, the rapport, gentleness, respect, Lord, 
that is appropriate in the moment and that you would then fill our, our mouths and our minds with, with your word and we would speak, God, from our hearts. We pray that you would do wonderful things in the lives of people, that you would bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. You would open their eyes as you did ours to recognize the amazing thing you've done for us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Continue to change our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.